0: This last Thursday, the Consumer Price Index, or CPI, which is the most common measure of inflation, rose to 7.5%. That was much higher than the consensus estimate of 7.2%. Markets had rallied on Wednesday ahead of the CPI release, but they plummeted on Thursday and Friday after the government released the number. Today we'll talk about the I-word, what inflation is, and why it's so big and scary that investors on Wall Street are stampeding to the exit like a herd of bears. (laughs) Information provided by Wall Street Petting Zoo is for educational purposes only and not intended to be financial advice. Please consult with a licensed financial advisor before making any financial decisions.
1: Hello and welcome back to the Wall Street Petting Zoo. This week at the zoo, it's the attack of the inflation monster. Why interest rates are rising, stock indexes are falling, yield curves are inverting, and it feels like there's nowhere to hide. I'm Christopher Smith.
0: And I'm Robert Coburn. Okay, Chris, so we don't want to over-dramatize this, but it does pose a real risk to the stock market and the American economy. Before we get into current events, I think we should do a quick primer on what inflation is and how it relates to taxes and interest rates.
1: Sounds good, Robert. First of all, inflation is a decrease in the purchasing power of money. And it's usually caused when the supply of money in the economy increases faster than the supply of goods. It's the law of supply and demand, right? Basic economics. If the supply of a product increases faster than the demand for the product, the value of that product decreases. And that happens with money, too. When the supply of money grows and its value decreases, that's inflation.
0: Inflation can cause a lot of problems if it happens too fast, but usually we like at least a little bit of inflation. The Federal Reserve, which is the US central bank in charge of controlling the supply of US dollars, has an official target of 2% inflation per year. And their tool for achieving that target is to change the interest rate for loans. To understand how this works, you need to understand that new money is created every time a bank gives a loan. I think most people figure the bank takes money out of its vault and lends it to people, but that's not how it works. When a bank gives you a loan, it actually creates new money out of thin air. But banks can't just do this willy-nilly. They have to follow the rules set by the government and they have to lend at the interest rate set by the federal reserve so by changing the target interest rate the fed can control the pace at which banks create new money borrowers will borrow less money if they know they'll have to pay a higher interest rate
1: there are three other major factors that affect inflation robert the first is the supply of goods in the economy if you suddenly destroyed half the cars in america the price of cars would skyrocket and the power of a U.S. dollar to purchase a car would decrease. The second factor is what we, the citizens, actually do with our money. Sometimes when times get rough, people will hoard trillions of dollars in their bank accounts rather than spending that money, and that takes money out of circulation and reduces the inflation rate. Economists capture this with a variable called the velocity of money, which measures the speed with which money circulates in the economy. And the third and perhaps most important factor is deficit spending and taxation by the US government. Remember when banks give loans, they create new money and the US government is the single biggest borrower in the world. When the government runs a trillion dollar deficit in a single year, it essentially creates a trillion dollars in new money that year. And that can cause inflation. On the other hand, when the government collects taxes, it's actually taking money out of circulation which can slow inflation down. In fact, the government's decisions about borrowing and taxation are probably the biggest factors affecting inflation.
0: I feel a little bad for the Fed sometimes because they're the ones in charge of controlling inflation, but they only control one of the levers for doing that. And the biggest levers are controlled by Congress. So the Fed is kind of at the mercy of Congress. The Fed can influence Congress's decisions by changing the interest rate that the government can borrow at but it has no direct control. Plus, even though the Fed is theoretically independent, the Fed board is appointed by the U.S. president, so the president can sort of bully them into doing what he wants.
1: We're in an interesting historical moment, Robert, because for the last decade, U.S. inflation has been unusually low. In Obama's second term as president, the Fed couldn't create enough inflation. Remember, they want inflation at 2%, and if they undershoot that target, they're supposed to reduce the interest rates in order to try to increase inflation. But from 2012 to 2016, the interest rate was already at zero, so it couldn't go any lower, and inflation averaged just 1.3%. And the reason for low inflation in those years seems to have been the shrinking U.S. budget deficit the deficit came down from one and a half trillion dollars in 2011 to just half a trillion in 2015. I know it sounds weird, but most economists agree that Congress just wasn't borrowing enough money under Obama. We actually should have been running larger deficits.
0: That trend changed in 2016 when Donald Trump took office and passed a large tax cut. The US budget deficit increased and so did inflation. Cutting taxes was probably the right move But Trump's tax cut was a little too big. Inflation went from 1.3% in 2016 to 2.5% in 2018. To get inflation back down to 2%, the Federal Reserve raised interest rates. In September 2018, the Fed's target interest rate rose to 2%. The stock market did not like this. From September to December, the S&P 500 stock index plunged 20%.
1: There are lots of reasons that stocks don't like rising interest rates, Robert. For one thing, let's say interest rates are at zero and I own the S&P 500 at a 1% dividend yield, so I'm collecting 1% in income per year. But suddenly the Fed raises the interest rate to 2%. So now I can buy a US Treasury bond for a 2% yield with much lower risk. So maybe I sell the S&P 500 and buy bonds instead for that higher yield and maybe everybody else does that too, causing a stock market crash.
0: Yeah, and rising interest rates also slow the growth rate for earnings, Chris. Maybe I'll pay a certain price for a company that grows its earnings at 20% per year, but the price I'll pay is a lot lower if its growth slows to 10% per year. Interest rate hikes cause all companies' growth rates to slow down or even go negative all at once. What price are you willing to pay for a company whose earnings are actually shrinking, Chris?
1: Maybe I'd buy a bond instead.
0: You and a lot of other people.
1: So let's bring this up to the present, Robert. In February 2020, the COVID-19 pandemic hit. The stock market crashed and the inflation rate fell to almost zero because people were taking money out of circulation by hoarding it in their bank accounts. The Fed dropped interest rates to zero, and the U.S. government ran a budget deficit of over $3 trillion, more than twice as large as any other budget deficit up to that point in history. Stimulus continued in 2021 with a deficit of $2.77 trillion. So this was the largest increase in the supply of U.S. dollars ever, and it happened in just two years.
0: And at the same time that the money supply increased, the supply of goods decreased. Businesses shut down due to the virus, and some of them never reopened again so there was a huge shortage of goods. People stopped coming to work or demanded higher salaries because they were afraid of the virus, so there was also a labor shortage. With more dollars chasing fewer goods, inflation started to rise. The Fed told everybody that inflation would be transitory, that it would go back down as soon as lockdowns eased, people went back to work, and factories and shipping companies caught up with backlogs. But the inflation rate just kept increasing, And in December 2021, the Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell announced that he would stop using the word transitory. The Fed has signaled that this year it will aggressively raise interest rates to control inflation.
1: There are several reasons this inflation might not be transitory, Robert. For one thing, we created a lot of new money, like an unprecedented amount of new money, like an entire decade's worth of new money in just two years. Secondly, a lot of people haven't returned to work as expected. The labor force participation rate is still down over 1% from the pre-pandemic level. A lot of older workers simply retired for good and won't be coming back to work ever. Plus, more people than ever before are missing work because they're out sick. In January, 3.6 million people missed work due to illness, which is about four times the usual number from the last decade. The education and healthcare industries are particularly stressed because they're very demanding industries. They had high burnout rates even before COVID. And now you add on top of that, a super high risk of getting COVID. So people are quitting on mass. And since the barriers to entry in teaching and healthcare are really pretty high, there's no one to replace the people who quit. So it kind of seems like the labor shortage isn't going away anytime soon. It
0: seems like supply chain problems aren't going away either. There are shortages of almost every commodity. A lot of economists are saying that this is because we didn't build our supply chains to be resilient in a crisis. To maximize their profit margins, companies only built just enough capacity to meet immediate demand. The supply chain didn't have any extra slack. And since every part of the supply chain is limited by every other part of the supply chain, nobody can get caught up.
1: In many sectors of the economy, I think the pandemic just brought to the surface problems that already existed. For instance, most economists say that we've underbuilt housing for a decade ever since 2008. Some of that is because home builders were decimated by the 2008 housing market collapse, and it took a long time for them to recover. And some of it is because of government regulation. Cities all over the country have banned construction of new houses in order to increase the value of existing houses. And we're seeing a similar problem in oil and gas. Nobody is building new wells because everybody expects the oil and gas industry to be destroyed by renewables and government regulation. So even with crude oil prices now approaching $100 per barrel, investment in oil and gas hasn't significantly increased. Nobody is drilling new wells or building new refineries for oil and gas.
0: Remember, Congress has the biggest levers for controlling inflation. In addition to reducing the deficit or raising taxes, Congress could also do a lot to address issues with the supply chain. They could remove regulation, subsidize programs to train more teachers or healthcare workers, or offer tax breaks to home builders and producers of commodities like lumber, oil, and gas. But it's Congress, and Congress is broken. So there's a good chance they won't do any of that, which means the problem lands squarely on the shoulders of the Fed
1: the Fed only has one tool for addressing inflation, interest rates. And they've signaled that they intend to use that tool. But interest rates are a pretty blunt instrument for controlling inflation. And a 7.5% inflation rate is astronomical. Trying to bring inflation back down from 7.5% to 2% just by adjusting interest rates is an extremely steep hill to climb. This year, the Fed will bring the target interest rate up to roughly 1.5% from its current level at zero. But historically, at this level inflation, interest rates should be nearly 8%. So it's conceivable that we may have years of rising interest rates ahead before inflation comes back under control.
0: And let's talk about the risk that this poses to the stock market, Chris. Remember, when interest rates rise, the price that investors are willing to pay for stocks comes down. Right now, investors are paying about $23 for every dollar of S&P 500 earnings. If interest rates rise to 8%, we can expect investors to pay only about $12 to $13 for every dollar of S&P 500 earnings. And it's likely that earnings would come down as well. So in that scenario, we might see the current price of the S&P 500 get cut in half, a 50% drop in the S&P 500 would destroy a whole lot of retirement accounts. And there aren't a lot of places to hide either. Rising interest rates cause bond prices to fall and inflation decreases the value of cash. So investors are being forced to choose from a lot of bad options right now.
1: Let's talk about some of the places that investors are hiding out. First of all, one option is to bet against the S&P 500. You can either go short, short selling, or you can buy put options. Both of these are ways of betting against the index. The problem with this is that first of all, the people on the other side of this bet are charging really steep premiums right now because they know that the odds of a stock market sell-off are really high. So it's really expensive to place this bet, which means you can't be just a little bit right, you have to be really right or you could lose all your money. You have to have the timing down, which is a hard thing to do. And if too many people place bets against the S&P 500, Any increase in the S&P 500's price might force them out of those bets. They would be forced to buy the index in order to cover those bets against the index. And that could cause the index's price to rise really fast. This is called a short squeeze, and it's what happened with GameStop last year.
0: Another option is what's called hedging. This is when you have most of your money in the S&P 500, but a little bit of your money is in a bet against the S&P 500 called a hedge. With this strategy, you make money if the S&P 500 goes up or down really fast, but you lose money if it goes sideways or if the price declines very slowly over a period of several years. So if prices come down slowly, you might actually do worse with the strategy than if you weren't hedged at all. This strategy is a little complicated, but there's an ETF for it. It's called the Invesco S&P 500 Downside Hedged ETF, and the ticker is PHDG.
1: I actually have some money in that one Robert Uh, another approach is what's called a pair trade so you could place bets in favor of companies that benefit from high interest rates and against companies that are hurt by high interest rates so for instance banks usually do well in a high interest rate environment whereas companies with a lot of debt usually do badly for banks interest is profit while for debt-ridden companies interest is an expense so you could buy shares of a bank like Goldman Sachs, and you could hedge with put options on a company like, uh, with a lot of debt, like a biotech or a marijuana company. The risk here is that it could be too late to implement this strategy already, because a lot of people have already done this, and bank prices have already gone up a lot, and biotech and marijuana prices have already come down a lot.
0: For those who don't like to place bets against the market, I get it. Betting against the market is expensive and it's usually a losing trade. So a possible alternative is to buy stocks and ETFs that are already cheap. Whereas the S&P 500 is very expensive compared to historical prices, perhaps even in a bit of a bubble, there are other parts of the market that look relatively cheap. For instance, small cap stocks indexes look reasonably valued and emerging markets like Latin America are at their cheapest price relative to the S&P 500 in over a decade. It stands to reason that there's less room for their prices to go down and that they might even go up if they can attract investors who are selling the S&P 500. Other options include cash and short-term bonds. You'll lose some money due to inflation, but maybe not as much as if you have your money in stocks during a major sell-off. And finally, one last option is a hard asset like real estate. With mortgage rates set to go up, now might be a reasonable time to lock in a low-rate mortgage and buy a house. The risk there is that as mortgage rates rise, housing prices may come down. It's possible you'd be better off if you waited to buy when rates are high and prices are low, and then refinance later when rates come back down.
1: There are no good options, Robert, but there are some options that are less bad than others, and I'm definitely exploring several of those myself.
0: Well, that's our episode for the week. Wall Street Petting Zoo is available on all your major podcast apps, including Stitcher, Spotify, iTunes, and YouTube. If you'd like to support the Wall Street Petting Zoo podcast, please consider giving us a five-star review on your favorite podcasting app. Thanks for listening.
1: See ya.